One of the reasons that we as writers, particularly writers of some sort of fiction, are such peculiar, unnatural, irregular, yet astonishing people is that we not only try to make the impossible possible through plot, scene, and structure, but we consider ourselves to possess such insight into the human condition that we actually have the audacity to create entire lives and call them characters. We build from nothing complete and utter other eyes. We construct passionate, eccentric, manic, ugly, flawed, and endearing personalities who consequently alter the world. Think Salinger's Holden Caulfield, think Fitzgerald's Daisy Buchanan, think Irving's Owen Meany, Berryman's Henry, Wolfe's Clarissa Dalloway. Where would we be without these wholly absorbing friends of ours? And so, if to build a character is to, if only for an instant, unburden ourselves of our own peculiarities, our own idiosyncrasies, in order to dwell within the actual physical and emotional space of the created person, then this is an especially humane sort of process to take part in. If we can abandon our own self to inhabit the vision of another, if only imaginary, it seems to me that this empathy creates not only great art, but probably great citizens. We are happy to have at today's Elevenses an amazing expert of character, Sands Hall. Sands is not only a novelist and playwright, but a professional actor and theater director, giving her perhaps the most experience building and occupying characters that one could possibly have. Sands Hall's work as a director includes, among others, The Mad Woman of Shalott, To Kill a Mockingbird, Strange Sightings in the Great Southwest, and her own adaptation of Little Women. She has an MFA in theater arts from the University of Iowa. Her novel is entitled Catching Heaven, and she was recently in the critically acclaimed production of The Cocktail Hour. So please join me in welcoming Sands Hall. Thank you. I think Carol has the most astonishing introductions I've ever heard. I have had the opportunity many, many times to do introductions because I work at a a writer's conference in Squaw Valley. And uh, I tend to go and look up what the writers have done, and then you sort of use a bunch of adjectives. So I'm really impressed by uh, Carol's wonderfully thoughtful introductions. Every time this week I've heard one, it's just been uh, wonderful and thorough and really uh, beautiful grounding. Um, It is great fun for me to get to talk about this part of my life. I was just saying to Carol that how often I I come to the festival here, and although, of course, in my classes I often use the analogy of theater to talk about writing, in fact, I think very few people know just what a humongous, there's a good word for you, part of my life it is. I uh, make money doing it, imagine, and um, I actually uh, do a great deal in my life that has to do with theater. And just as happens when I'm in the theater, they don't really know I'm a writer and director because even though they overlap, it's hard to sort of say, you know what else I do? You know? <laughs> so um, this is really a thrill to get to talk about. And I really want to thank, I know that Christine and I have been doing our esteemed friend and colleague thing all week, but she really did in, um, encourage me to do this talk, and I'm grateful to her. Um, just to get us started in the theatrical world, I want to tell you a little story on myself. I was in a production of um, King Lear up at Ashland many, 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 many years ago when I was a sweet young thing. I was playing the role of Cordelia. 
And uh, Ashland, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, as you may well know, is situated, some of you may have been there, um, in an absolutely beautiful park called Condon Park. And it's got all kinds of wildlife and green paths and waterfowl ducks and geese and lovely sounds and twerping and chirping. And it's a beautiful way to walk between, say, seeing a matinee and evening performance, go have some dinner, go take a walk, even take a picnic. It's a wonderful environment. Well, I was doing King Lear outside and um, in the outdoor stage, and um, it was in the very dramatic first scene, and King Lear has asked his first daughter, Goneril, what canst thou say that will get you a big bunch of my kingdom? And Goneril goes, I love you this much, I love you this much, I love you so, 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 so much. And he goes, here's a good part of my kingdom for you. This particular production, though not needed, which is a point I'm going to get to, had a huge map hanging so you could sort of see, here's how much kingdom you get. And then Regan said, he said to Regan, how much do you love me? And Regan said, I love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. And beautiful iambic pentameter, blah, blah. And he says, pointing to the map, you get this much. Then he turns to me, sweet young thing over there in the corner next to the fool. And um, he says, and thou, Cordelia, not last but not least, but not last but not least, or whatever that phrase is, he says, what canst thou say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? And these are my lines, mind you. I say, nothing. And he gets glowering. He says, nothing can come of nothing. Speak again. And I took a deep, big breath. which was my dramatic moment when I was going to say, I love my father as a daughter loves a father, no more nor less. So I took a long breath because this was my moment. And as I took a breath, this large duck went, And all of us on stage just froze. The audience roared just like you've just roared. I mean, the timing was perfect. And so there we were just trying not to laugh, just trying so hard not to laugh. And how could you forge forward? Because you just shared this enormous bond, the audience and the people on stage. We had just had the quack moment. So anyway, that has nothing to do with nothing. So. Um, I think that there is an enormous usefulness in an analogy between theater and uh, writing, whether it's actually fiction or nonfiction, uh, or even poetry for that matter, because I think so much of what makes theater theater is the fact that the imagination has to be used so completely. That's why I sort of say, we didn't need that map, because he, Shakespeare's lines, I mean, uh, King Lear's lines given to him by Shakespeare utterly made that clear. But we're always trying to give new room to Shakespeare, which I'll get into in a moment when I talked about my work as a director. But um, one of the most incredibly important things about theater is that one of the things you learn right away is a scene must always take place somewhere. And I think this is one of the things that people forget all the time when they're beginning to build a story, that you have to be somewhere. Even if you're starting in some sort of psychological uh, meanderings about your characters, sooner or later, you're going to have to put them into action to show us what's happening. And that is one of the most essential aspects of theater, is a person is up here, and they are in a wood. They are on the ramparts of Elsinore. They are in a stormy, they're in a storm. And all of that gets said by dialogue, and hardly ever, although certainly 
People have been working on sets forever to make them ever more fantastic and realistic. Sometimes real rain comes down. I saw a production at Ashland of Rose Tattoo or something where the people walked around getting wet. And of course, all you do is think, how did they do that? (laughs) Pay no attention to the acting, but that's just my opinion. Um, There's also, I think, a very important thing attached to theater, which is that um, theater has this thing when the curtain rises, especially if you get a great big drawing room scene or some lovely um, piece of artifice that has to do with maybe the Forest of Arden or whatever it is that's done with lights and scenery and set, if set designers are going that way. As an audience member, you get to see it like this. The lights come up. Same with a movie, but I'm talking theater here. The lights come up, and you get to take in a whole bunch. Sometimes there's sounds, chirping of birds, maybe underscoring of music to help create mood. And all of that is being taken in at once. Well, as writers, we don't have that huge moment of reveal. We have to do it because we work with only consecutive things called letters and then words and then sentences and paragraphs and chapters. We have to choose and select what comes at the reader in what order. But we still have to set the scene at some point. And I think that that understanding of letting somebody, getting a person, a reader, in our case, not an audience, to see the scene is extremely important. And one of those things we can learn from theater, how important it is to establish where characters are. Um, The other thing that I think is essential about theater to understand, even though fiction is different and we use different uh, methodologies and we can revel in them, but a great um, instruction is we are not allowed inner thought in theater. Sometimes there's voiceover in theater. Yes, there is indeed. Sometimes there's use of diary entries to talk about transitions. There's ways to do that. But mostly, the only way we get information across in theater is the use of action and dialogue. Characters interacting and what they say. People walking around an empty stage and doing something with an object, usually some sort of interaction, unless they're monologuing. Um, uh, But that is the only way that information can get across to the audience. And I think, as people in my classes, they're having to struggle the early part of this week where I won't even let them use dialogue in a class that's about scene because I think it's so important to understand how much can be said just by where we find people. Where are people located when we find them? And what are they doing? How much information can be conveyed in those two things? Which comes utterly out of my acting training and my acting work and certainly my work as a director. I have three hats I wear in the theater. One as playwright and one as director, and one as actor. And I want to talk about them in that order, as, and then use the actor part to really get into this discussion of character. Um, as a playwright, it has really brought home to me the, some of the things that I have then become obsessed with in my fiction writing, which is this issue of, A, how can I have action and dialogue reveal as opposed to a lot of exposition-y description. Also, that any story of whatever length is composed of scenes. There is no way we can tell a story without having a scene, and then another scene, and then another scene. So which means that something has to happen in each of those scenes. I remember um, 
both as myself, the story on myself of getting to the end of writing my novel, my first novel, Catching Heaven, and taking a look again. This is why I say don't rewrite chapter one, because sooner or later you're probably going to dump it. Anyway, I had rewritten chapter one so many times, it was brilliant, and I can say that because no one's ever going to read it. Um, and um, I had just worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. Well, I got to the end of re- writing the novel and realized that the chapter one did nothing but sort of run in place. It was very important for me to write because I came to understand my character, Maud, whose point of view it was in extremely well by writing and rewriting it. But in the end, I could chop it and lose it, and the story started in Media Race. In the middle of action, I didn't need any of that. What I did need of it, I could pull into a little sentence, maybe a little loop, which I sort of call flashbacks. There was a tiny little ways if I needed to refer to something. If there was an important scene in that first chapter, I could plunk it in as a, as a true flashback later, as a loop later. But mostly, all of the material in that just got dumped because it wasn't needed. And that's a great thing. I had, I had probably seven scenes in that one chapter, None of them needed. None of them forwarding the plot or the character that I couldn't, I wasn't already doing in the rest of the novel. Similarly, I was working on a brand new play, which has been uh, one of the great delights of my life, as I had gotten to direct a number of brand new plays and work with the playwright in them and beginning to put them together. And uh, Jacqueline is a very accomplished playwright. Um, she'd written this play that um, Carol mentioned called Strange Sightings in the Great Southwest. Beautiful story of two sisters, each with, you know, real conflicting needs and and a, a, a daughter, one of them has a daughter, so it's an, a mother, an aunt, and a daughter. And uh, their sort of warfare and interests and intrigues and trying to be, you know, whatever's going on, I don't need to explain that to you. But what happened was there were three scenes that were doing basically the same work. They were all beautifully written, filled with witty, funny lines, touching, had wonderful buttons on them, did the work that a scene should do. But I went to Jacqueline and I said, you got to get rid of two of these. They're just not advancing anything. And she looked at me, her eyes filled with tears. You know, fortunately, we were very, very good friends. And uh, she said, I have been thinking about this myself. And so she went home. In fact, we kind of um, compromised on cutting one of them. And, and, uh, and she kind of she spread out some of the information so it looked more, uh, it seemed, because she really, I could see why she wanted it. We had, which is a great thing. One of the things I'm always telling my classes is if you can fight for what you want and why it's there, then you know why it's on the page and that's valuable. So she fought for what she wanted and it worked fine. But it was a wonderful lesson again of how there, she could see nothing changed. Nothing was different as a result of two, three, five, seven minutes on stage. And the same thing may be true. You might be sort of thinking about your own book or, or story right now. It's like, what is work is that scene doing? Um, so these are amongst the things as a playwright that I have become extremely conscious of what is it that a scene accomplishes? Also, very importantly, has brought home to me in my own writing, what is the, um, usually one or both or all characters, but particularly the two principal ones, there has to be a real through line, as Stanislavski calls it. What do they want? What are they going for? What are they, uh, what are they desiring? What are they, wonderful word, yearning for? And does every scene encapsulate that longing? Is there some way that yearning is moving forward? Does the character at a given scene get what they want? If they don't get what they want, that's almost always the beginning of the next scene. If they do get what they want, that's almost always the beginning of the next scene until we get the big resolve at the end of the play. And again, very, very useful <clears throat> information for me to take with me into my own writing where it's much easier, I think, to dawdle because you have language 
and lovely sort of setting to describe and characters to play with. But the bare bones of theater really force you to say, <clears throat> what am I moving forward? In my play, Fair Use, there was a scene towards the end of Act One um, where uh, I had a bunch of characters coming in, and it was sort of trying to set up some history and stuff. And I was doing that kind of work, except there was a little bit of that problem of exposition and dialogue, which I think we are all a bit familiar with. And one of the actors said, I hated him at this moment. He said, you know, I just, I don't know, I mean, nobody wants anything in this scene. It's, it's just going nowhere. I mean, why is it even in the play? I mean, couldn't I just, like, have an issue here with so-and-so and he solved the problem for me, you know? It's like, I hate it when actors are smart. <laughs> I hate it. Um, but he was absolutely right, and it was a great big lesson for me because I hadn't been paying that much attention to that. There has to be a want. There has to be a want. There has to be a conflict. There always has to be somebody wanting something that he can't get for whatever reason. So um, that is one of the things I, those are things I've sort of learned as a playwright and have brought into my writing, and certainly as I get down to character, um, um, as I talk more about it as an actor, we'll, we'll close in on the character aspects. As a director, it's much more, um, I think, as we are as sort of the writer of an entire piece. A writer gets to create, um, as a playwright does, a writer of a piece gets to create the entire world, the characters that inhabit it, uh, the settings and the activities and what's going on, uh, the plot. Of course, that's up to uh, the writer. A director has kind of a marvelous situation. There are these black marks on white page. This is a miracle I never get over, by the way. And those of you who've heard me lecture before know I always say this at least once. But these black marks on white page that jump off and let us see sunsets and let us get moved and let us laugh and let us have some sort of epiphany ourselves. They're just these little marks on paper. Well, as readers, we're doing that in our minds. As playwrights, the delicious and terrifying challenge is to put that up on a stage for people to see. It's one thing when, say, a naturalistic play, um, such as the one I just referred to, Strange Science in the Great Southwest, which was slightly surreal, but it was still very naturalistic, and or a play I directed uh, a year ago called Mad Woman of Chaillot, a beautiful Giroudoux play, which takes place in a great big sort of cafe outside in a French street with people doing activity and behaviors and people coming in and out of the street and a sort of wonderful mad woman who shows up and solves the world. Just It's a beautiful, touching, wonderful play, but very naturalistic. And that's really much more how do I create a world that is recognizable, that people will not be jarred by, that doesn't look like the 1930s to me, now, in this particular case, I was really playing around with the fact that the plot of that particular story is that uh, there are these oil barons that want to drill holes under Paris. This was written in 1929, mind you. And so I actually did, and there's people called the American who is the prospector. He's actually, Giroudoux has him already in a cowboy hat. There's so many things that were true even then. So I did push the familiarity with our own world now in this play a little bit, um, but mostly kept it in the 30s because I felt that a play that's speaking in whatever time period, a part of the joy of art, of course, is that you can read anything that takes place in the 21st century, the 19th century, the 18th century, you know, 1350, and we're enthralled by the story because the story still speaks to us. It doesn't really matter that people are wearing pumpkin pants or 
or um, or miniskirts. You know, it's it's up to us to sort of draw those inferences from the story. Um, Shakespeare, however, gives a director a marvelous opportunity to create a universe um, that is unique and different for each performance because there is there is not a place they're set. One could always set them in Elizabethan times, but in fact, Shakespeare himself set his plays in places like Athens and Italy and Navarre, France. Um, So we can actually go for the time period in which he wrote them, the time period in which they're set, or we can, as I think many of you have probably seen Shakespeare plays that have been set in mysterious um, South American countries. I I saw a production of Julius Caesar, which totally worked, sort of set somewhere like Bolivia, and it totally worked because it had all of that mystery and intrigue and murdering of political power um, completely worked in a new context. So one of the joys I have is working with a theater company and an artistic director who just says, you know, that part's up to you. And my very first directorial gambit up at the Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival was a production of Love's Labor's Lost, a play that's not done very often. And one of the reasons it's not done very often is it's known as a comedy, but it doesn't end as comedies do. Traditional Shakespearean comedies, everybody gets married at the end. There's happy, happy ever after at the end. I mean, Twelfth Night's got Malvolio going, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you, which is a nice little dark note, Christine's wonderful lecture on Monday, to the happy proceedings, which puts them into relief. But nevertheless, it's happy. Love's Labor's Lost has these sort of kingly guys, a king and three, his three henchmen, who have decided to take a vow of chastity and just devote themselves to their studies, premise, conflict, income for lovely women from France. And so, therefore, everything is blown up in the air and they have to, like, you know, renege. Or, or, and the girls, of course, won't dance with them the way they want them to dance with them. And so there's much mayhem ensues. Um, and the ending of the play is that they're in the middle of this wonderful um, cacophony of delight with one another, having a great time, and in comes a messenger from France to tell the, the princess, one of the women, that her father has died, which means that she is now queen. So there is this moment in the play of tremendous sorrow and um, where everybody, how I directed it, everybody suddenly has this realization and has to kneel down to her because she is suddenly queen now. And uh, this whole mayhem suddenly goes into a much more somber place. And the women say goodbye to the man, and there is no happy ending. So I, this play is always played in Navarre. It's always done in France in the high sort of really um, uh, very formal world that that implies of a certain time period, sort of Elizabethan. But I had been, I love music, and I'd been listening a lot to Celtic music, and I decided I was going to set it in Scotland. And the reason I wanted to set it in Scotland, for one thing, was I could put the men in skirts (laughs) to look at their bony knees but also because I wanted to play around with the role reversal that took place in this play. I had a wonderful costume designer who um, figured out with me how we could stay in period, which was set in King James VII. He's the man that came, became King James I eventually of England, but he was King James VII of Scotland. And in that time period, there really were courtesans and women that underneath their big, beautiful Elizabethan gowns with the farthingales would have pants on. So we actually managed to play a lot with the gender issues of this play, turning because Shakespeare himself had turned them on their ear, we also were able to turn them on the ear. And we had wonderful music, we had step dancing, we had all kinds of wonderful stuff that totally worked in the context of the play. Now that's a great example of being able to create a universe um, of, as a playwright, and it's a whole lot of work, I'll tell you, because you're in charge of 
ultimately, you know, the concept, of course, and then making sure the set and the costumes and the lighting and the music and, and of course, the actors are all fitting into uh, that scene really well. Um, and another example I did was a, a production of Love's Labor, I mean, of Midsummer Night's Dream, which I set in kind of Inquisition Spain so I could have the fairies in the forest be gypsies, which really worked very nicely as well. So that stuff can be really fun to play with as a director, and that's very much about creating the universe of a play as a director. As an actor, it is a very different thing because you really have your singular job to do. Um, I've bumped up against this sometimes because I tend to be a little bit of a bossy person. Surprise, surprise. Um, and sometimes get in trouble because I want to push the interpretations of other people in the scene with me, not my job. And that has been a very good thing to sort out where, where when I'm an actor and when I'm a director. And those are two very different hats to wear and sometimes um, confusing and puzzling and frustrating, but mostly a blast. And so here's where we really get into, um, I think, the issue of creating character is when we're in an actor uh, mode. As a director, I can talk to people about their characters, and I often do. We have what's called table talk or table time, where I sit one-on-one, or I sit if we're about to rehearse a scene, I'll I'll sit with the two actors whose scene it is, and we will definitely ask the things we've just talked about, that I just mentioned. Where are we? I'll sometimes ask that as a beginning because it's good for the actors to have to figure that out. They can say, well, we're in Navarre or uh, we're in a house in the Southwest. Okay, good. So what's in the environment with you? Just to start getting us located because just like writing, acting can be very nebulous and nonspecific. And the more specific we get in these art forms, the better and more effective it is. And every time people are vague on stage, we lose an audience member. I mean, already today, I can tell when I've been vague, I lose you. When I'm specific, you're with me. And I can feel it's absolutely molecular. I believe in the molecular theory of interchange. So it's like, I can feel it. Oops, I lost them. Bring them back. You know, and it's very magical. And on, on stage, you feel it a lot. And where it happens a lot is when actors are being vague. And... Um, I will always want to say to them as a director, what are you doing in this scene? I don't just mean, um, because actors talk in verbs a lot, I'm trying to adore her, I'm trying to change her, I'm trying to uh, manipulate her. It's like, okay, fine, so how are you specifically going to do that? What are you going to actively do? And then that often will get into the discussion of props, what's on stage with us, are we got, do we have cocktail glasses, do we have, are we making tea, Are someone knitting? Is someone scrubbing the floor? All of these things that we actually will jumble through very fast to get what's an activity that will manifest this on the stage so a reader, uh, uh, excuse me, an audience member can see. And I'm sure you're already beginning to see yourselves how this is very useful for a writer as well to think through. What are characters doing on a stage? What are they handling? Well, when I come into work as an actor... What I have done as part of my homework, and this is, of course, very different as a writer because as a playwright and you as writers, you have to do all this work. So part of it is I'm presenting to you, here's the kind of work that an actor, if one of your stories were to be performed by those wonderful word-by-word companies or even to be transformed into a play, have you done this work? Amongst the things that I will do, well, I will look at every line in the play that refers to me, my character. And I will say, I will see what is being said about me. 
and I will put those on a list. I will write them down because that's the way I begin to build character. I will also see what I say about others because I think that's the way I begin to, to build the character. What is my perspective? Am I ironic? Am I cynical? Am I just totally in love? Do I have a bright view of the universe? Am I, am I a cynical view of the universe? Those things will help me manifest myself. There's a lot of techniques that have to do in theater, which I think is hysterical as I'm teaching writing, too, that there's almost absolute cults about what you should and shouldn't do as an actor, just as I think there are what you should and shouldn't do as a writer. A few years ago, um, Robert Olin Butler was doing this thing online. Did you go, you could go watch him write? Did anybody do this? <laughs> I had my issues with it. Um, he was writing a story, and you could look over his shoulder and watch him write, and you could see what he was doing. And I guess he spoke a little bit about it as well. And people were just like, falling all over themselves about the, 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 what they were learning. Now, I will say that I never watched it myself because I was bothered by some of the things that were coming out, and, and, and I was, I will admit it, utterly defensive on the subject matter. Um, but there did seem to be this little cult growing up around don't rewrite what's on the page in the first place is always going to be true. I mean, things that are just like, possibly be working. If you're Robert Owen Butler and you have really brilliant, you've been writing for years and years and years and you have the benefit of workshop and the benefit of publishing and the benefit of editors, maybe. But when you're just learning to write, you know, there's all kinds of issues you have to sort out for yourself. So anyway, enough of that. There is, an, there, however, are factions in the theater world. And I'm sure you've heard of the whole method version of acting. Lee Strasberg, 20s and 30s, uh, really brought home Stanislavski's work here in the United States. Unfortunately, he only took half of Stanislavski's work and sort of ignored the other half of it. And that work was very much, in order to be a character, you had to um, be the character. You had to, if you were going to play a nurse, you had to go be a nurse for a while, and you had to read all about nursing, and you study nursing, and you had to uh, absolutely just bury yourself in everything there is to know about nursing. Not that I think there's anything wrong with this, but I think that there's limits. A wonderful story is told about this when um, Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier were filming Marathon Man. And I understand, I haven't seen this movie, but I understand that Marathon Man is about a man who's running a marathon and in smart. Aren't I smart? <laughs> and um, Dustin Hoffman uh, spent the night, I guess, running all around Central Park or wherever they were filming this. Running, 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 He comes in to the makeup room the next morning, puffing and panting and looking haggard and terrible and saying, oh, my God, this is, I'm just so exhausted, I'm just so tired. And he's sitting there getting patted down with the powder and everything, ready to go take a scene. And there's Olivier looking dapper. And he says, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> and I am a little bit of this school myself, which is that I think it is so valuable to go do the research, of course, but I don't think you have to go be a nurse for three months in order to play a nurse. I think that our imaginations and our, um, and our understanding of human nature are such that we can figure out what the nursing issue is about, and what we need to do is look, just as we do when we do research as writers, we have to absolutely have a, um, an authenticity to our movements and to our behavior. I mean, we watch Grey's Anatomy, something like that. Those people have to have some degree 
to know what they're doing. I mean, I read some article about McSweeney saying, whatever his name is, um, saying that what they actually do behind those masks because they're hidden is just go blah, 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 and that later the stuff is, 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 um, is recorded. And it's hard for me to believe. Ever since I've been watching Grey's Anatomy with a little more like, it looks like he's saying what he's saying behind the mask, you know. But it is funny because they're all doing these things where they're putting the cramps open and they've got the blood pumping and the things are going this, you know. It's like, it feels very authentic, very, very authentic. And it's those actors have obviously done enough work to really understand how to be inside of that world. But do you have to go and study to be a doctor? Not necessarily. So there's, there's these lines, I think, that we can draw in technique. And I think those of us who have gotten deeply into research rapture, as my friend calls it, my uh, a good friend calls it, it's like we can get so into the research that we don't do the writing. And we forget what it is that we're, why the purpose is there, that we're there, as opposed to, let me just get just enough information and then fly with it. And all of us, I think, have seen manuscripts where people have done this in our workshops. I think it's wonderful. It's like, need detail here. Need authentic detail here. You know, Sometimes you don't know what it is yet, but you know that you're searching for the thing. And that usually means you need a little more research, but you're, you're getting the world down. You can begin to fill it in, and you can use your imagination. My current novel... I confess, um, a, a couple of scenes take place in Wyoming. I haven't been to Wyoming except through, in a car and passing through on a train. So I've had to, I haven't gone and walked on the dirt of it. So I've had to use my imagination. I've been in the West. I understand what Earth looks like, what rain feels like, what long distance looks like. I can read about Wyoming. No doubt within the next year or two I will visit Wyoming before this book is published because I am a little freaked out about my lack of authentic detail, and I'm sure I'll be, I'll be called on the carpet, especially now that I've confessed to you all. <laughs> but um, in general, I just think that people in t- for time immemorial have been imagining, and that is one of the things we have so strongly in our favor, is a very powerful ability to imagine. Where I think building character from the um, inside out has to do is, and we've all done this too, I think we're certainly read about it as techniques, is I'm going to write a biography of my character. I'm going to know where she was born. I'm going to know what her parenting was like. I'm going to know what her siblings did and didn't do. I'm going to maybe write down a couple of really important formative experiences in her childhood, where she lives now, is she married, is she not, all those things, some of which will be informed by the plot I'm concocting and some of which will be informed by, um, it's actually going to, as I write it, will concoct my plot as we're writing um, as actors, of course, we have to pull in what the playwright's given us. We can't change the what's called the given circumstances of the play, but we can certainly invent within that and bring our own interpretation to it. Uh, there's wonderful exercises that we use as writers as well, which is if you open my character's purse, what would be in it? And in fact, often you will create that purse if you have one, so that when you open it up, you know what's in it, and it is your character's work. Sometimes you have to have a fight with the prop person over this who doesn't want your lipstick smudged um, uh, Kleenex or the 15 of them you want in there to spill out to show something about your character. It's like, but it's a nice purse. I don't want your lipstick smudged Kleenexes in there. You have a little quarrel. Or the costume designers, this happens too, where you want to actually uh, go down on your knees. I've had quarrels as a director about this. You can't have actors go down on their knees. They'll get dirty. <laughs> so these little problems sometimes we run into. But there's a lot of inner work we can do to create character as writers. And uh, many of you, I'm sure, have, have experimented with this, which is 
uh, writing a biography of at least your main characters and sometimes your minor characters, what's in their closet, what's in their purse, figuring out the sort of psychic, um, I mean, the psychological world, psychic too, psychological world that they occupy um, in order to manifest themselves into the world. I think just because of who I am, I've always been much more comfortable with trying to find, for one thing, I'm a bit of a person who lives in my head all the time anyway. So I found myself getting quite stifled by all that sort of intellectual work. And it took me a long time to realize that about myself as an actor and to move towards the physical. And that's a great deal of what I, I just want to share about character with you today. That has to do with, I can say my character um, lives in a messy universe, but until I go and create that messy universe, God, I'm going to really regret this afterwards. Until I actually create that universe, I don't have a sense of this woman's world. Oh, here are my nice glasses, but in order to really create this character, you know, I'm going to do this thing so that everything that I'm doing has this problem, you know, and then I'm beginning to get her. You know, I understand her. And... And this is what I will take absolutely with me onto the stage. And usually, as, as often as not, the director's thrilled. You know, because it's like, I've done that homework at home. That's what my job is to bring in. Same thing. I mean, I think we've all sat at our desks writing, and I love this when it happens, when um, this is currently my messy character. When I'm being my neat character, there. Um, and, we've, and we're writing, we're going, what is that movement I'm trying to get her to do? You know, and you stand up and you walk around the room, you know? It's like people would think we're absolutely crazy. What is that feeling, you know? Well, as actors, it is the funniest thing. When you see, like, a group of actors who are about to go audition, they're all alone, they're not doing the scenes, they're just by themselves, and they walk around. <laughs> and there's, like, five of them all doing it at once to themselves. Bedlam. Bedlam. Um, so when I, more and more in my career as an actor, it was a very funny thing because I had studied at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, and then I had gone to Ashland and Colorado Shakespeare Festival. I'd gone for some years in New York, had that kind of career, went to Los Angeles where the marrow was sucked from my bones, and I no longer wanted to be an actor. So I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop and came and got my... MFA in writing, and then thought, well, now what do I do with my life? <laughs> MFA means Master of Fine Art, and after two years of being in a writing program, I certainly was not a master of that art. It felt I felt completely like an imposter. What I felt like a master of, if I was a master of anything, if you ever can be a master, was acting. So I decided to go get a second MFA over in the theater department, and I thought, brilliant, what I'll do is I'll get my MFA and I'll teach write, acting and write. Well, of course... If you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. Anyway, <laughs> exact opposite has happened, really. I do a lot of teaching of writing, and ever since I got that MFA up, my theater work just really has started to roll. So a very interesting thing, because I had given up on theater, just given up. And I think it was partly because of Los Angeles' emphasis on push-up bras and nylon stockings and what you look like, which is just not my thing. It just drives me crazy to think about that. I hate nylons. I feel like I am a sausage. Anyway. <laughs> um, I think this is the single thing, the single thing that stood in my way. <laughs> yeah, heard it here. Okay? Um, but um, when I came back to uh, school and went back to get that MFA, which God bless that department gave me in, um, I'm pointing the wrong way, um, 
gave me in one year, instead of the usual three, because I'd had so much professional experience already. I was an equity actor when I arrived. But it gave me back the gift of why I'd love theater in the first place. And it really forced me, just in terms of who I was working with and the speed with which I was working, to, to work on a much more physical way. So I want to just talk a little bit about that. Um, when I was here, I worked on a role uh, <clears throat> in a play called Burn This. And the, uh, the, the character in that play is named Anna, the female character. And she is a dancer. And I was already beginning to realize that I had certain... You know, you always know this as an actor. You've got your, this, is your, this is your instrument. This is what you've got. But then I had certain ways of standing that were Sansa's, you know, and ways I would just work. So I really tried to think through Anna, who is a ballet dancer, and there were, you know, there was a bar on stage. I got to do all that work and all that stuff. But she would stand a lot, I thought. She was a very centered person, but also she was a dancer. So her movements would be, and her stance would be very centered in first or second position, this one, which is a very common dancer position, we've all seen dancers do this, you know, where they do their turnout, they're always working on their turnout. Um, I thought this was just a little too effective for this particular character, and I really made a choice to have her be very square between her two legs and not to, to go onto one hip or the other very often because I really saw her as being a very centered person whose life is kind of thrown off balance by this man that enters. Of course, that's what happens in all theater and all fiction. What happens is there's a little tiny bit of order which goes into chaos and that's how we start a story. Okay, So there she was. And frankly, it was really thrilling because Lambert Wilson, the writer, uh, playwright, actually came and watched, it was a season of his plays and made a comment about that, that he really liked how this production of um, Burn This had this actor at the center that had this sort of centered quality of standing on her own two feet, which is how he phrased it, which made me very happy. Recently, I, this production of The Cocktail Hour by A.R. Gurney, a delightful play, by the way, if you ever have a chance to see it, it's very funny and very touching. Um, I had to play a woman who was supposed to be 84. And they pulled everything down because the actors were somewhat young, so the man playing my husband and I both had to play more like 75, um, which is still, believe it or not, substantially order, older than I am. I just want you to know. <laughs> there wasn't enough snickering. <laughs> anyway, um, so I really had to work with that. Obviously, they gave me a wig, and um, and uh, but it, most of it, because it, the theater was so close, the average seat was this close as these seats are. These first two seats, we were in the, in the round like this. So I really had to work on a physicality, and this was a great thing. And again, I say these things because I think this kind of motion, especially when we're working in close third person or close first person, close usually is first, but that there is a physicality you can give a character that really will make a difference. I have to put my sheets back on because she was a very elegant woman, um, had been born into money, was very patrician, um, and drank an enormous amount and kept herself completely together at all times. The, the biggest laugh line of the play was the fifth time I said, I'll just have a splash more. I'm serious, just a splash. Because she'd now had like 18 splashes. But, um, I really had to work on, and it was, it was very difficult, I really spent a lot of time at home, how does she get up from her chair? How does she walk? There's kind of a more flat-footed quality. And she also had to wear heels because it was this cocktail hour. 
And so I really spent a lot of time at home. How do I actually do it? And she, because we were in the round, there was a lot of turning around she had to do. So I actually sort of had to fuse my backbone, too, because, you know, I myself do all kinds of stuff to keep limber, but I had to really figure out I can't bring that to her. She has to be this completely different person who's a little older and often a little bit tipsy, but will never show it. <laughs> so there was this quality of just having to figure her out in this particular way, where I had to wear glasses because she also did some needlepoint, which uh, was the thing she did to calm herself down in these situations. So that was a very enjoyable thing, to climb inside of a character like that. And I bring it up, be- again, because I think that um, <clears throat> when we are struggling to occupy a particular character... One of the things that we have is our physicality, and we absolutely have to have things that we're doing. In the case of Anne, in cocktail hour, I had my constant in dance with just how full the level of my glass was. And that was a real objective for me, was how long can I keep this before I'm going to ask for, whoops, see, that was wrong, for just a splash more. So I had to keep that going. Um, Another character that uh, was wonderful to create uh, was a one called um, Dabby in Our Country is Good. And for her, she, this was in a penal colony of, of Australia, I really created a much more... You can imagine I really thought through my outfit today. <laughs> she, she sat around like this a lot, you know, and she just had the kind of... Um, she had kind of witchy bulls, almost um, psychic thing that she had going. So I had a lot of fun with her thumbs and her physicality and how she had to sort of get up and move around the stage in a much more pugnacious way. And again, it was physicality that got me to fight, climb inside of her. And what I think is something, again, that when we're creating characters, how are they moving? How are they sitting? Think about that. We tend to give our characters what we ourselves do. We don't necessarily move out of our comfort zone of that. And thinking through, how can they behave differently? How do they move in the world? Some of the writers I most admire um, really do beautiful things of painting physiognomy of characters, unusual looks. I have a friend, one of my dearest friends in Nevada City, who's about to turn 70, and she truly has what's known as a dowager's hump. It's just grown up. It's just there. And she's incredibly active. She gardens every day, but she has, and I think there's a deep, deep sorrow in her life, and I think it's completely reflective of this deep, deep sorrow. And that she just has this kind of, even though she struggles so hard to be joyous, and she often is, there is this thing, and she gardens, and she's just got this huge hump that's growing on <coughs> her back, you know? And I think that those sorts of things to to remember that not all of us look, I mean, I think it's obvious, but we often do not take the time. And what we do is say, their hair was blonde, and their eyes were blue. And we don't go to the much more, much larger physicality of a given character, you know, of, of how they move what their rear end looks like, how they cross their legs or don't or can't even. And I think, again, physicality is very important. Um, Another aspect is just briefly costuming, of course. What we give our characters to wear is incredibly important. And two wonderful examples that I think I'm hoping, again, will spark ideas for you. Um, Costume designers often draw what are called renderings. So you get to see uh, what your costume is going to wear the first day of rehearsal, what your character is going to wear the first day of rehearsal. And I was playing Maggie in Dancing at Lunasa, and I saw that she had these boots on, these kind of unlaced boots. It was very cool, and I was looking forward to it. We were rehearsing and rehearsing, and then eventually the costume designer, bless her heart, brought those boots in. They were men's work boots, unlaced, funky, old, ancient things. I put them on, and I was Maggie. 
all of a sudden this character just went into her feet. And she was the person who, who uh, gave chicken feed to the chickens, and she, she uh, cooked and she smoked. Cigarettes were really handy for me. And there was just this incredible person that emerged as soon as I put on those boots. In a different way, the first time that I saw my costume for Gertrude in Hamlet was thrilling. I'd read the play. There are many, many ways to look at Gertrude and um, Claudia, Claudius and the relationship between them, that Claudius has murdered the previous King Hamlet, and that's the ghost that's haunting Elsinore. Um, but there's all kinds of ways. Are, are Gertrude and Claudius really in love with one another or not? Well, my costume design showed me in a red dress with a slit that came up to here and a gold medallion that hung to here. And I went, okay, I know where to take this now. And that's because she and the director had talked about it. So all of those stuff, the significance of red, the significance of a piece of gold that's hanging here, and the significance of a slit, and the significance of those boots, the significance of the cigarette, all of those things are choices and selections that you get to make. And then on to sort of my almost most favorite thing is, what is a character doing on stage? Um, when I was, the summer I played Cordelia in, um, God, the time's gone by. Um, I hope it has for you. Um, <laughs> I was playing Alexandra in uh, Little Foxes, and um, the director and the playwright actually instructed that this little character named Alexandra, this was many, many years ago, again, the sweet young thing summer, um, would sit over in a corner and she would read um, sonnets by William Shakespeare. And I just thought that was so boring and had nothing to do with the character that I felt this character was, who was watchful and observing these weird aunts and uncles of hers and mom and dad who are creating really, really bad real estate choices which were going to affect their lives. So I went to the director and I said, you know, I kind of think that Alexandra would write in a journal. I think she's recording this circumstances of this world. In fact, I believe to some degree she's Lillian Hellman, the playwright herself, as a young girl, that she's, she is observing this world. The last line, again, that thing I told you earlier about what do characters say, my uncle um, Dan says, you're turning out to be quite an interesting young lady, Sam. <laughs> so that's the last thing about me in the play, and it's like, I thought, I said this all to James Mall, the director, and bless his heart, he seized that. And he gave me my, my choice of a journal, a little tiny thing, and he actually ended up pulling this hassock way downstage um, on the stage, which was very realistic, and half the time I sat with my little pinafore and I would be watching and often writing in the journal. So he basically made the play's point of view be mine as I was writing. He really went with that idea. A great example of a director working with an, an actor. And again, object having a great thing to do. I then always had something to do. I could slide it back into my apron pocket. I could walk over into a corner. I could scribble with it. And I never felt empty on the stage. And I think that especially as writers, we have got to pay attention to what people are doing. I mean, look how interesting this is. Watch. <laughs>
I have an objective, right? (laughs) I am looking for something very specific. And you're utterly engaged because it's around something. Now, what does it mean that it's in a waste paper basket? Something's been thrown away, but something's really wanted. Look at all the significance you're going through out there. So... I really want to just sort of finish. I was going to have so many questions for you. But, I have that. but that one of the most useful things you can do is put your characters into action. Think through what they are doing. Where are we? When um, at the beginning of Hamlet, it's like, what ho? It's cold and bitter. Uh, are you well? It's your turn to watch Bernardo. It's like we're getting to see this cold, scary place that turns out to be Denmark, some, where something is rotten. The playwright sets up setting an activity, an object, and if they don't, that's the job of an actor or director to do. You as writer get that job all the time. You get to put that material in there. You get to figure out what it is that a character is doing that can reveal something about them, not just talking. Talking is really boring unless it's attached to doing. And the word actor comes from act, action. And keep that in mind as you're working on your pieces. Questions? Anybody have anything they have to say, ask? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you made a really interesting point about the, uh, how imitation is so important. What, the, what you think the character would be like. The reason I think it's kind of exciting in part is that in neuroscience, there's there's uh, some recent data that's pretty exciting that says that mirror neurons, essentially neurons in the motor cortex, in the motor part of the body, are what are probably responsible for empathy. Uh-huh. We actually empathize with others because we essentially mirror their body movements, and as a result of that, we understand what they feel. That's, I don't know how long if that's going to stay in vogue forever, but that's probably the way they think. And I guess my question would be that when you try to mirror or you, you try to take on the actions of what you think a person, I'll say an older person, would be like, do you, as a result of that, do you start to empathize even more with the character? Oh, of course, of course. And of course, you also empathize with anybody that even looks like that out in the world. You're suddenly watching them very differently, you're watching how they move, you're watching, you know. And that work as a writer happens all the time, I think. It's that beautiful thing of why writers, I think, can stare into space or, or watch for a really long time. They're getting, look what happens to that mouth when that happens. Look at what that person's eyes look like. I'm going to concoct a story around that. And there's all kind of thing. Art is, bottom line, incredibly empathetic because we're interested in climbing inside, even when we're feeling cynical and ironic and sad, we're interested in climbing inside and trying to communicate and discuss that for hopefully um, our, to share and be with others about that. So I think it's utterly empathetic. It's a great point. I can't think of the title at the moment, but do you think most novels can be turned into plays? No, not at all. Some novels really recommend, really aim them at something like Little Women, which I adapted does. It's like most of it takes place in the first book anyway, in one environment, and uh, the dialogue <coughs> is very easy to emulate. But some books are all over the place. Well, Shakespeare goes all over the place, but it's harder to do it on a play on the stage. And also, dialogue doesn't necessarily aim itself at stage just because it's dialogue. So no, I don't think things can be adapted easily. But I think it's always an interesting thing to, 
think about am I being as active as possible in my writing? Am I showing people in motion rather than telling them about them being in motion? Can I just ask one more question, mm -hmm. please? Do you think people who are playwrights can easily become novelists? Well, the, gorgeous, not. the gorgeous thing about playwriting, I'm telling you, is so great. <clears throat> 1876 train station, passengers disembark. <laughs> Heaven! Ted enters, disheveled. Heaven! So much easier than... The misty oh crime, I can't even begin. <laughs> no. I think playwrights have it. I mean there's a whole different kind of emphasis, but I think it's not at all the same because you have to think in description as a fiction writer. That is that is the delight and the tool that we get is to create the whole picture, which is what we as directors and actors are doing when we put it up on a stage. Thank you. Yes. Um, I will first say that I, I'm just like David Hamilton yesterday. I'll hang out for another five or ten minutes, so I don't feel a need to stay. I, I, I won't grade your down if that's <laughs> okay. Um, the thing that's very important about this question is that we will have readers who know the world that we're imagining. And if we bust open their belief in what it is they know, we have to do enough research to convince a reader that we know what we're talking about. I've had friends who've thrown a book across the room because a detail on the Indian motorcycle was not correct. <laughs> and so it, it uh, which I could care less about, you know, but some readers really care about it. So if you're going to use something that meticulous and true, you have got to get your facts right, which is why you have friends who are experts read your work. And they say, no, this isn't how it works, or it turns to the right and not to the left, or this gun didn't have this kind of thing. Or, you know, it's got to be, you've got to be absolutely authentic when you lose readers. It's essential. Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys for seeing me be antic. <laughs>